I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Jenny Pentland is the author of the memoir, This Will Be Funny Later. Jenny is a writer, mother, and hobby farmer. The daughter of Roseanne Barr, she, along with her sister, was the inspiration for the characters Becky and Darlene on her mother's long-running eponymous television series, Roseanne. Jenny spent her teen years in various self-help programs and considers herself a survivor of the predatory troubled teen industry. She lives in Hawaii with her husband and five sons. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss This Will Be Funny Later, a memoir. Thank you for having me here. Best cover ever, by the way. Love this as a child of the 80s, you know, (laughs) growing up. This is just fantastic. As was the book. Oh my gosh. I just recommended it actually on some local like Good Day DC feature that I did. Anyway, thank you for sharing all of your ups and downs and treatments and journeys and everything. I feel like I've just gone on such a ride with you. And what inspired you to share it? Like what, when did, why did you, why now? Why did you decide to share your story? I'm not a thousand percent. I mean, I've never in my life done something for just one reason. I think there was a bunch of, a bunch of reasons. One of them was I was kind of coming out of a dark period where I was basically couldn't leave my house and was agoraphobic. And part of coming out of that for me was not saying no to things just because they were uncomfortable or because I knew that they would be transformative and I couldn't control the direction of the transformation. So I think that that was part of it was that I had sworn to myself that I would say yes to any opportunity presented to me. And then there was just something about 
the time that was telling me that now's the time to talk about these things. This is the right time in my life and just in, in the way the world is right now. That's all. Wow. You had the funniest chapter headings, by the way, like every, the, the whole packaging of this book, because I read a lot of books and I like have such an appreciation for interesting structure and titles. And anyway, like I kept chuckling at everyone, even though a lot of the content was very emotional. Uh, the way you wrote about it was always sort of like with this sense of humor, kind of tongue in cheek, a lot of the stuff that went on, I feel like, I hope. <laughs> I'm hoping it would come across that way. And like the early, like when I would let people read the chapters, I'd be like, read this one. Cause I was, you know, being funny is our family's language. I don't know how to talk about anything without a sense of humor about it. So I'd let people read it and like, think they were going to come back to me and be like, that was hilarious. But they would always be like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's not coming across or... But I mean, it's a healthy mix of comedy and tragedy, I think. So it, it depends on the reader, which, you know, what their reaction is going to be. But definitely being funny is a huge defense mechanism in our family and our love language, I guess. I should really have that guy on. You could next time. <laughs> I'll try to put you on at the same time. Maybe we could have a whole session or something. <laughs> I was literally saying that to my husband the other day because I was like, he did something. Well, anyway, it's not relevant, but he did something. I was like, we're having like different love languages here. Like I was showing my love by taking care of 5,000 things and you're only yeah. showing love by spending time with me. <laughs> anyway. Attention to my needs. That's, I, I have the same, like, I like that guy in that theory. I just think there's like some, he should delve deeper into the the other versions of love languages too, because being mean is a love language for some people. That's true. And that was my list. That's true. The dark web version yeah. of the five love languages. <laughs> love it. Oh my gosh. Well, there's so much in here that was so interesting from obviously growing up with a celebrity as a mom and how that transition happened over time and how you coped with it. But I was more interested, honestly, in your struggles with your mental health and the eating even, the ending up in the treatment facility at 280 pounds and having to go through that. I actually worked at an inpatient unit when I was in college. I love psychology. I'm very interested. And I was in the adolescent inpatient unit. And so all of this reminded me, you know, the same sort of terms and everything, although mine was in New York. And then all the way to the like gastric bypass, like this whole arc of that part of coping, honestly, right? That's just like one way yeah, to yeah. cope. So I was hoping you could just talk a little bit about that and how it felt to share it and sort of where you are with it now. Well, I think like, well, sharing it was easy because it's like, I don't know, being fat, you can't keep that a secret. So it's not a secret. So, you know, you're sharing it by going outside. So I think there's a vulnerability that just always exists in being overweight that you can't, you're not choosing to opt into the vulnerability about talking about it. But because of that, I think it was easier in some ways to talk about that than the anxiety and the other things that you learned to kind of cope in ways that people might not know. But, you know, I, I felt like I just had a unique journey with that because I never really did the disordered eating parts of it. But it was like, I don't know if I haven't worked that one out all the way yet. I might need to write another <laughs> solely about that. But, you know, I was a little bit overweight when I got put into the institutions and then, you know, being complacent and sitting on my butt and eating cafeteria food for five years, I just kept gaining, gaining, gaining. And by the end, I was about 280 pounds. And then it became like a power struggle issue between me and counselors or me and people who even our counselors that would take us to 
OA, like Overeaters Anonymous meetings and my own family and the power struggle part was more what it was about for me. And then using that as a means of autonomy, like having some autonomy, like, what are you going to do about it? Like, this is one of the only things I can control. And that part with the disordered eating, other people that I've talked to that have had struggles with that, the control issues are the real thing. And I see that in other parts of my life too, with just trying to manage being alive and control what you can control. So I think looking at that was hard because that is pervasive in every other avenue of my life too. So I wish I could compartmentalize it just into body issues or eating issues, but unfortunately everything is just so deeply tied and interwoven with everything else that just never going to untangle it all. No, I totally get that. I have sort of struggled with my weight my whole life. And I feel like it's so unfair. Like I've had all these thoughts. I'm like, if I were an alcoholic, like nobody would know if I was just, I mean, maybe I would be falling over. I should, I probably shouldn't say that. It's probably not, you know, appropriate or something, but like, I wish I had something that nobody could tell. Like everyone knows I'm like failing at something right now, right? I'm, I'm failing publicly and it's, like, I'm really ashamed and, you know, I can't do anything about it. And I'd be like in my, anyway, I don't know. This is my own yeah. stuff, but that's I totally true. relate. <laughs> and, that's, and, and, and also just, you know, we do live in a society that's extremely critical of women's bodies in every way for everything you do. You're too skinny, you're too fat, you're too this. Or if, if you feel great, then you dress too provocatively, like all of it. It's like, there is, there is no way to be as a woman where you're not in constant criticism wherever you go. And when you're in public, then it's like, you know, you're being looked up and down. And I think because of that, like, and women get in on it too, because then we're, we're feeling picked apart. So then we start pick apart, picking apart everybody else to try to figure out where we fit in there. And it's, I mean, it's probably in most countries that I've been to anywhere I've traveled to, I feel a little bit of it. Part of the reason I liked Hawaii so much is because that's probably the only place that I did not feel that way. And they have very different views of women's bodies and, and, and female being there, which I really like. And very, flow, very flowy clothes, which is nice. <laughs> flowy clothes. Also, just no one cares. It's amazing. It's like you're judged on merit a lot more than anything else. So, because everybody's related to like, everybody knows each other is related. So it's like, you know, I think you're going to be a lot more uh, or less critical of people who are in your family than you would of a stranger and people that you see every day, you start to see past anything that you pick up on. I think we're also in these big communities and big cities where like, you know, you don't really run into the same people every day. So people don't have a chance to get to know you beyond their first impression. So you're just constantly being first impressioned to death. And it always has to do with your body or your clothes, like whatever it is that I feel that you're insecure about. Like if you don't have enough money for nice clothes, whatever the thing is that that you feel you're you're falling short in is the thing that you're going to have in your head. And other people will pick up on that. Oh, wh- why is she looking secure? And then they look you up and down and go, oh, okay, it's because of this or that. And, and that's just the way of categorizing other people. And we all do it. We all categorize other people to try to figure out where we fit into the pecking order. I've had chickens and goats for a long time. And I just watched the way they do it. And I'm like, oh, it's just innate that we try to figure out the pecking order where we fit into it. And, you know, in, in human farmland or in the, on the human farm, it's a different thing because we can be really, you know, it's, it's verbal. We're horrible. We're horrible verbally to each other. 
and just microaggressions and stuff. I'd rather somebody just peck my eye out to put me below them, sit there and slowly critique me to death on a podcast or something or like a in a news article kind of situation. So I think the book was a lot about that too, is just being picked apart slowly. (laughs) These all sound like bad options. They're all bad. These are our choices today, being pecked apart by chickens or, you know, sabotaged in the press. I don't know. (laughs) I'd rather just just peck my eyes out. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I guess it's not the best option. (laughs) Be called fat. I haven't decided yet. No, I was really also moved about when you wrote about the birth of your first son and how he was born with a a soft cleft palate and how you handled that and the surgeries and that all must have been so stressful too. Yeah, I think being a new mom and I was 24 and I was in LA and I was in the the Jewish area too. We lived right by my temple and I think there was so many things about it that were stressful. Me and my husband had only been together for like six months at that point in time and I think we were both on unemployment, not when it happened. I was a nanny when I got pregnant, but then like soon after when I was so anemic that I couldn't work, we were on employment. So yeah, there's a lot of things that were stressful during that time. And then that being one of the things he was born with a left palate in the soft part of his mouth and just the way everybody else handled it and me trying to sort of, sort of stay calm and listen to my intuition and also be my own advocate. And also I looked like a 15 year old. so none of the nurses wanted to listen to anything that I had to say. And yeah, it was a stressful time. It was a very, very stressful. I mean, I'm, I'm saying it like, like it hasn't been that level of stressful up until this morning, but it has in all honesty, always been. It continues now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, I get, I have, you have five kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have four kids and I, I understand the stress, but (laughs) I think it's also the unpredictability. At least you never know who's going to have an issue or what type of issue and everything else has to stop while you handle it and all of that. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe 
three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. Yeah. And then, you know, there's the, that's just in the physical world. There's also all the spiritual and mental repercussions and the dynamics between brothers and the dynamics between extended family members and, you know, just all, all of the interpersonal aspects. And if you don't have a lot going on, like say your kid didn't have a cloth palette, you would worry that there's something that you couldn't see or you would worry that you're not going to be a good enough mom. I mean, we're just... I think hardwired or programmed and taught to just worry and worry and worry and worry about everything. So that, that's a huge part of parenting that I see. I've been doing it for like 21 years. I honestly don't think like if I, if my brain gets quiet for a moment, I'm like, Oh, what if, you know, one of my kids has a driver's license. Okay. Well, what if his car breaks down? What if the tire falls off? Like you can just really spin out in that kind of, fear. And I feel like when you have kids too, for like what I was talking about, trying to be in control of situations, you're basically never going to be in control of the situation ever again, especially when they're 18. And you, there's a level of acceptance that you need to have or else it's really, really difficult. And I think like, I've been watching all those like sad mom movies and (laughs) not lately. And I think that's a huge aspect of it is there's not like, you know, all the onus is on the mom, it seems, for the most part, for the kids well-being mentally and and physically. And if the kid struggles at all with any of their own independent issues, then it somehow always feels that it goes back to the mom. So just motherhood's no joke. Yes. I would underline that if I were reading it. <laughs> motherhood is no joke. Not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Yes. I totally agree. Do you feel like, you know, you're, you painted a picture of what it was like for you growing up and the kind of parenting you received. How do you, like, do you keep that top of mind when you're like in the day-to-day dealing with your kids, like actively going against or actively, you know, making decisions to do things in the way that you wanted or that you would have wanted it? But yeah, I think there's an element to like, I don't, I don't want to make the same mistakes that were made with me. But at the same time, I don't really even view them as mistakes. They were just kind of how people had to cope in the moment. So I think for a while when my, when my youngest was young, like, you know, three or four, and I, I don't know if I said he's 21 now, but when he was like three or four, I realized that I was reactive. Like I was being reactive to the parenting that I had. So I was basically essentially accidentally doing the opposite mm-hmm. as opposed to really consciously looking at myself and what I thought I needed to do as a parent. So it, it was like, oh, I don't want to do that. So this is the opposite of that. So I'm going to do this. And then at some point I was like, that doesn't work either. And I think that the real thing that works is just like getting to know your kid, paying attention to your kid and 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 really viewing them as a, a human being and trying to 
parent. And, but that brings up a whole nother thing when you have more than one kid too, because you're parenting each kid differently and you have this different relationship and dynamic with, with each child, which makes it a little bit more difficult. But I think that that was like, once I realized that I was reacting to pain that I was like, Oh, I should probably deal with my own pain. And that's probably the best thing you can do as opposed to just doing the opposite since that's just two ends of, you know, extremeness or whatever. Yeah. If you can have like the self-awareness and perhaps the right therapist to work through all that, then you're probably better off. How do people find therapists? I, I've like, I feel like I found a life partner and my best friends and the people that I love really easily. Like they just kind of came into my life and I was like, I love that person. I can't find a therapist that I can, I cannot find one. I'm like, is there like a, like a speed dating situation? Like, I'd like to just go in and sit down and be like, Hey, here's all my issues. Like top five. Can you handle it? And I actually did that with my last therapist uh, a couple months ago, but then she ghosted me. So I have a new therapist who's like amazing. I am happy to send you her information. Someone just recommended her to me on Instagram. And I was like, okay, anyway, she's amazing. So I'll take it. I'm happy to send it to you, the information, but I agree. It's hard. I mean, there's so much personality and style and I don't know. There's a lot of different factors. I'm being like probably way too personal, but. Yeah, no, well, I don't know how to be personal. (laughs) (laughs) How long did it take for you to write this? And like, how did you feel writing it? Did you like, was it like a huge relief to get it off your chest or I don't know. How did you feel about it? No, I mean, it wasn't a real, you know how, when you're mulling over like your to-do list in your head for like a week and then you're like, God, I should just write this down. So I don't have to keep like cycling through. And my whole life, I was kind of like collecting stories in a way that I wanted to process later. It was mostly like, I need to process this, but things are too much is going on now. I need to process it later. And so I, you know, I always had in my head, oh, remember, don't forget to process this one you know, and just like kept mulling them about in my head. And I think it was causing me a lot of anxiety. So at some point I was like, oh, if I write these things down or write these thoughts down and that's where it started. Cause it really started on Twitter, maybe like eight years before I started to write the book was I was like, I have to get these thoughts down or it's going to make me insane. And my kids were little. And then Twitter came up and was like, oh, I have to condense these thoughts down to like one sentence And then I can just put it away. And then if I need to go back and look at my Twitter feed later, I can, I can search it. So it kind of like Twitter sort of was like a, like just an organizing, like to-do list of life processing kind of stuff. And then once I started doing that, I realized I really enjoyed like kind of editing things into a shape. And, and then I went through that struggle where I was like, couldn't leave my house. And then I was like, I'm going to say yes to everything. And then my friend called and she was like, are you ready to write a book? I have somebody that can help you. And I was like, nah, yes. And just kind of delved into it. I had no idea. I still don't know what happened or how I did it, but I just like would be like, okay, now what do I do? Okay. Now you start writing the words down. Okay. (laughs) So I called my dad and he's, he's really smart and he remembers everything. And I just, you know, he, he told me year by year, he gave me a timeline of events and I had compartmentalized them into like little pockets in my head and didn't remember what year anything happened. So that really helped me out. So I did the timeline first. And then I started saying, oh, this is this, like, say my mom 
got her TV show in this area. That also was when I was like 12. So this is what I was going through personally at that time and trying to like connect everything and, and figure out how all of it happened. And it ended up being really cathartic and healing in the sense that I was looking at my life and what happened those five years through everybody else's eyes in a way, because I wanted to really be fair and not just have it be like a journal where I'm going to turn it into my therapist at the end of the week, because it could have gone that route. And like my first drafts, a lot of time would be like that would be just like, you know, I'm angry. And these are all the things I'm angry at. And then I was like, okay, but then also like, how did this person, what was this person going through? And the person that you're mad at, what was that like for them? And so, you know, it gave me a reason to put myself in, in everybody else's shoes and see it from their perspective. And that was healing for me because I I always kind of felt like maybe I was just sort of brushed to the side as a sort of, not inconvenience, I was more than an inconvenience, but like, just like nobody knew what to do with me. So they just put me somewhere else because they had too much going on. But then when I really could break it down, I could look at what really happened and be like, oh, okay, this was that week. And I had a lot more understanding for what happened. And I could really see how my parents did exactly what they needed to do at the time and how everything kind of fits. So that was healing, but it took like three years. So I'm like sitting there in my PTSD for like three years. And I don't think I handled it as well as I thought I was. Looking back now, the last few years are sort of a little bit of a fever dream trying to get to this point that I'm at right the second. And I did some things right. And I did some things not, not well, I didn't handle some things well. And, you know, I'm, I'm still like I said, it's transformative. It's extremely transformative, but I could not have imagined in what ways or like emotionally or physically or spiritually in what ways it would be transformative. And I definitely could not control those terms. So this is, you know, it just came out yesterday. So it's just starting to kind of hit me what ripple effect everything had. And not just of writing the book, but of, of my PTSD when I was a teenager, like I thought I had handled it. And then I thought, oh, I handled it. So now I can write about it objectively. But that seems to be not what happened in hindsight. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think really happened? I think I opened up a Pandora's box that I was not equipped to deal with. And I think I dealt with it poorly in some aspects. And, and now I'm trying to like recover those parts of my life that, that I sort of lost control of again, I guess. Yeah. So stay tuned for book two is what I'm getting at. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, having written this memoir, what advice would you have for someone who's trying to write a memoir of their own? Uh, don't do it. Just get a therapist instead and just work through that and keep the world out of it. Or, you know, write one and give it to your grandkids after everybody you, you write about is dead. I think those are my two pieces of advice. Don't do it or do it when everyone's dead. But you don't really mean that. No, of course I don't. I think anybody who's writing a memoir is probably doing it because there's some pain and suffering that they're trying to process. Because I don't recall reading a memoir that was like, then I went to coffee with my best friend. So I would say if you're going to write a memoir, it's probably because you're trying to process some stuff and just make sure that you set yourself up for being able to process that and have somebody help you emotionally through it and just do it. Also, don't do it. Also, just do it. And also don't do it. Those are my two people. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, okay. 
Thank you, Jenny. Congratulations on the book coming out. And I hope that in the long run, you're really glad that you did it and <laughs> that it you know, becomes like an inflection point and leads to a lot of more new, amazing things like talking to yeah. me and finding your perfect therapist. <laughs> Other people are hopefully helping some teenagers that have gone through that too, and, and maybe bringing some light to the troubled teen industry. And, and that, that was my real hope. So I'm actually on the board of the Child Mind Institute, and it's all about child mental health. If you have any interest in an introduction there or anything, if you want to help out or reach whatever, let me know that too. Okay. I'm happy to put you in touch with Harold Kopowitz, who runs the whole place. So yeah, I think I do want to get into that. that. That's kind of the direction that I'm feeling pulled right now after this. So I would love to talk more about that. Okay, great. Awesome. Thank you right. for having Thank me you. on and to me craziness. Oh my gosh, it was great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Right. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.